I guess I should turn it off, right? I've hijacked something. Was did I just interrupt uh, Michael or something? What happened? Was it going and then it like kicked off, or did this just pop on? No, I mean, but like I didn't. Usually, I have to. I get an opportunity to go in and like edit the information, but it was already going when I logged on. So he was on, was he on before me? What happened? He's been done. Okay. I felt like I, I, I didn't want to max headroom his ass and just like bump bounce in. But like you people were already in here, weren't you? What were you doing? Hanging around up to no good. That sounds like you, honestly, you shenanigans. All right, I'm sending it to Twitter to advertise to the masses that I'm uh, I'm on and live. What is up with my camera's aspect ratio? I could not begin to tell you. So today, I wanted to do something weird, get a little esoteric, get a little uh, metaphysical, get out on a limb, as it were. So I'm just talking out loud here, so please nobody take any of this too seriously. It's literally just musings. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to stand behind any of this. This is really off-the-head type of thinking, so uh, just... Take what makes sense, leave the rest. 
I was thinking about how how our understanding of the world, where we are in it, our understanding of how the world works as capitalist uh, identities, as as individualized liberal subjects, which is what we are. We have to stipulate that. When we talk about being human, being a human is not what it meant in other periods in history. It means what it is to be human in this particular point in history. Those people lived in a different world in a fundamental way, and I'll get to that. We have to really come to terms with that distance from where we are. So, like, we might be trying to build socialism, but we are doing it as liberal subjects, which is what makes the Twitter obsession with pointing out who is a liberal amongst the left so funny. Because, of course, everyone is. They could not be, or they could not not be. They are at some level aware of that, but since they can, they're still uh, mobilizing their politics on liberal assumptions that they have not interrogated they figure, ah, the way that I'm going to uh, prove I'm not a liberal is by becoming an ultra-liberal, is by uh, determining who is a liberal and casting them out, creating a, uh, a distinction. Because while a lot of these arguments about who's doing liberalism are correct, uh, the impulse to say if you have violated this in one way, then you are cast out is ridiculous because everyone will eventually be cast out and you will annihilate all solidarity because you will be applying this litmus test from a perspective of wanting to succeed in a hierarchy. That is what liberalism is. A liberal subject is, seeks to succeed in a hierarchy. They are motivated by the basic hedonic calculus of that is created by liberal society. The value system of narrow hedonistic selfishness expressed culturally and uh, intellectually and idealistically and religiously is uh, what is generated by a liberal subjectivity, the experience of living amongst other people who are all similarly situated, who are all liberals. We are motivated at base by a narrow hedonic understanding of self, because we imagine ourselves as liberal subjects separated from social existence. Because we believe that there is an objective reality that is interacting with us, our subjective reality, and that overawes it, and that determines it, and that we are only captured by, and we are completely captured by it. That is the liberal assumption, that, 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 that there is a mechanistic reality operating independent of the human will that we basically get to respond to. At, pressed at its base, it will accept the premise, the under, undeniable premise, that logically there is no such thing as free will. This is understood by the liberal subject, that free will is, un, is one way or another, however it's expressed, the fundamental understanding that free will does not exist is deeply rooted in liberalism. It's what drives everything else, because if 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 uh, if the universe is separate from us, whether we think of it like the early Protestants did as uh, the separation embodied by the supernatural God, to the current moment when God has been replaced entirely by the self, the understanding is still that there is the self, and then there is the world, and that we are. Uh, 
to be threshed into pieces by it. And it's a question of how do we live with that? And the answer to that question, if we are all separate from one another, will always be my narrow self-interest. How I can spend as much time as I have on earth as pleasurably as possible. And it is that programming that drives the liberal subject through their existence. It's, it's what we are, uh, are, are pushed by in the absence of the ability to assert ourselves on a world that is not determined by us. It is either determined by God or, another word for God, the mechanistic determinism of cause and effect that you observe through science. If you observe the world heuristically through metaphysics or through physics, the end result is the same. There is God that is outside and separate from the self. There is a universe that is outside and separate from the self and that we are not in charge of. That is the fundamental supposition of liberalism, and it is what undergirds everything else. And it therefore is, it is the inner, it is the metaphysics that capitalism produced because it facilitates capitalism. Because if there can be no, if there is, if there is, uh, if there is no control, if 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 there can be no, uh, power asserted, and all we can seek, therefore, is our own pleasure. How will that pleasure be expressed? How will we express our hedonism? And it is either through sublimation or through indulgence. The degree, and it, what determines that is which one uh, is more motivating to us personally, which boils down to who we are, as, who, what our experiences are. The sum total of our traumas determines what we use to orient our pleasure. But then we just pursue it. We just pursue our pleasure. Because that's the only rational thing. Because we're not in charge. Because we're separate. But that is an a, a incomplete understanding of, of the self. Conscious beings, humans, that are capable of, intera- uh, of, 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 of conscious thought and then uh, communication across space to other people of the same uh, species does not is not a su- mere subject to science is not a mere subject to reality that consciousness and those consciousnesses brought together literally determine what reality is they are co- they they are part of a feedback loop that gives reality actual uh, dimensions and that drives energy through the system, which means that there is no uh, 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 dichotomy between uh, spirit and 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 material. That there is no um, there is no contradiction between free will and determinism, because everything is literally wrought by our collective decision making, which, while driven by material causes is generated by a consciousness that operates independently of that. Because while we are physical beings that receive stimuli and that those send signals to our brain and that brain then makes decisions, there is a distance, just a temp- an actual physical distance that means that at a certain level, those responses are not perceived consciously. And then at another level, they are perceived consciously. And that gap between those two is the, 
inflection point at which consciousness emerges, at which there's sufficient distance from the stimuli to allow you to live a little bit in the future, to imagine the future and then step into that reality before uh, you've been determined by the physical uh, interaction, by, by the cause and effect chain. And then that changes you. And then if you act from that and then re- direct your body towards that, you have literally broken cause and effect. And you have started to create the world. And then you live in that fantasy through symbols that are generated by cooperation with others. And so you control the world, but this is the crucial distinction. The reason that that ends up turning towards bitterness and isolation and nihilism in Western cultures, because if you imagine yourself to be God, at a certain point, the fact that you're a God who is subject to law starts to fuck things up. You start to get um, a questioning of, of your of your degree of centrality to the universe, because how can I have control if nothing does what I want it to? But the more people believe something and operate from that belief, the more they are able to make things happen that they think. Cooperation literally facilitates the re-rendering of the fabric of nature. And we do that by collaborating along communicative axis, where we find common vocabulary and symbols to motivate us to do something. And that fucking changes reality. But only to the degree that it is shared. So while we are what reality is and therefore shape it, we only do it insofar as we can act collectively. The more collectively we are able to coordinate our actions of free will, it has to be of of will. It cannot be coerced, at least consciously coerced. It has to be consciously chosen. Action consciously chosen by sufficient people can literally break the fucking wheel of history. Now, the problem is, is that even though we are getting to a point, we're far past the point, in my opinion, where capitalism has accumulated sufficient uh, uh, concentrations and the technology has been generated by that action sufficient to create a rational distribution of resources through the biome and a, and a, and a coordination of action to uh, capture and reduce externalities from the system, to recover externalities into the system, which is necessary to be able to operate a functional system. Because like the Hayek school, the whole Austrian uh concept is premised on the idea that the price signal is the most efficient way to uh, send information through the system of the economy. But the thing is, is that the price signal is flawed by its uh, necess- the, the price signal only works to the degree that um, the externalities of the interactions and exchanges are not priced and are kept out of the exchange. And so therefore, as they accumulate in a closed system, They start to break it down, and it cannot deal with that.
but we have generated sufficient technology at this point where we could actually price in and bring in externalities by reducing profit, by breaking the, by pulling the fucking spine out of the machine, by, by, by taking the virus out of the programming and that virus being profit maximization as the, as the actual organizing principle of society. And the big obstacle to that is distribution of resources, independent self-interested action, because capitalism is premised on the idea that people will distribute it through a system with the, uh, the behavioral reinforcements that capitalism has. People will act narrowly selfishly within the system and that those who act narrowly selfishly will be selected for leadership and influence and therefore be able to exercise technological control over a greater and greater degree of the population while it extracts capitalism independent of human uh, survival. But if we had, if we use the technology we have, we could actually do it. But we could only do it if people were operating in that structure willingly. So you need people to change their understanding of their values away from selfishness. Now, where, where that idealist notion intersects with reality is, is that what generates that is not a mass consciousness raising. It's not 2012 and the fucking time wave cresting over humanity. It is not some massive alchemical shift. It is a slow grinding. It is people in specific positions in capitalism having experiences that spark new relationships and that build new symbols of power that are exerted, that build new practices of behavior, reward structures, ritualized, uh, uh, ritualized building of meaning affixed to symbols of action and cooperation. And that that driving through the structures of capitalism will create the counter-hegemonic force to confront it. Or it won't. But if it does, that's how it will. And all of this is just to, to say that the, the, the one of the big, for me, like I say, I'm always talking about myself and trying to talk my way around my own paralysis. Why do I feel so stuck politically? Why do I feel so uh, kind of captured by my position and, 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 and at constant uh, unease with it and my need to keep like trying to think my way around it? Like what is, what is generating that? And I, and I think, that my kind of uh, ritualized uh, response to that agitation is to try to d dig deep into why I feel like I am unable to act and at least oh, act in a way that feels effective uh, or feels like a real use of energy. And um, I keep coming back to just this liberal subjectivity pulling me away from of the beliefs and efficacy of action. And then I have to ask myself, why is that? And the answer that I come up with is that I focus from my position outside of most traditional, uh, of, of a, like a traditional labor relationship. Uh, and it's certainly not in a sense of feeling 
uh, exploitation, the sort of keen felt an alienation from a social structure, the feeling of being exploited by my society rather than a benefit of that society is not very high. I feel mostly constituted. I feel mostly uh, to have benefited from my relationship to capitalism in terms of my day-to-day life and its comforts. Of course, how could it be otherwise? So I have to confront that. And so I say, okay, well, there is, of course, the just the material relationship. That's one thing. But what is politics? What is consciousness? If not finding a limitation and then overturn, overcoming it through just concentrated uh, uh, mental work, taking your mind away from the constant just billiard ball action of stimulus response, of fear and desire, of feeling guilty and then wanting to have your guilt assuaged, of, of being comforted by misery because it's familiar, feeling uh, like a need uh, uh, a need to uh, punish yourself on behalf of a moral code that uh, is totally self-imposed and that could be trans could be actually challenged if you concentrate on, on it. And so uh, my answer is I have to do this hippy dippy bullshit, but not everybody does because I think if you feel capitalism as an exploiting force in your life, if you are alienated and feel alienated feel immiserated, feel precarious, but you also understand the system broadly as the cause, as opposed to, you know, being captured at a lower level of ideology by the idea that it's some sort of race war or that there, there's some sort of uh, uh, national capitalism that could save us. Uh, you have to, like, if you recognize uh, the fundamental uh, nature of this fight, the, like what the stakes are, uh, and then you know that solidarity and numbers are our only advantage and that that should guide your actions. Solidarity and numbers are all we have. And so anything that says, well, you know, hey, look, the Republicans aren't great. At the top, they're controlled by capital. But at the base, there's at least this nationalist uh, desire for a state that works for people besides just profit. Like there's room in the, in their ideology for a uh, uh, for a, a capitalism that is redistributive, but along these prescribed lines, nationalism very narrowly, uh, and then you know along these hierarchies that they want to protect. And so there's a the pitch that is made is you can't beat them. At least you can join them and maybe move them, but. The fact is, is that as much any case you want to make that the left is held captive by the Democrats and that they their alien the alienations they build up along the cultural axis are insur- make it insurmountable for them to try to actually engage with people uh, beyond uh, liberalism. You can make that argument, but you will be defeated because those same problems on the left, the Democrats exist for anybody who's trying to build a nationalist so. Uh, project on the right, because at the top, it's still the most concentrated capital, and it's still grinding away, independent of what the base wants. The base wants spectacle, and they can give them spectacle all day long. Trump gave them the blueprint, cultural spectacle. There's this fantasy that these idiots have, that the Democrats, because they're waging this culture war jihad, that if the Republicans, you know what, if they just won, they wouldn't do culture war stuff. 
they're as annoyed with culture war stuff as our, our, we are because we both hate the same arguments in the culture war. But like, dude, they hate them for a different reason. They hate them to hate them. They hate them because it provides the dynamic that serves their best interests, which is that you keep fucking arguing about this shit. And so they will fuck your, uh, you up. You can like go, oh, let's give us some cat national capitalism. Let's give us some hair and folk democracy. Let's give us some racial, like some racially t- means tested uh, uh, democratic so- social democracy. And they'll say, yeah, that's cool. No, you're going to eat trans bathroom bans and critical race theory bans and your and uh, militarized border and extravagant uh, of anti uh, uh, crime measures and like public executions on television, uh, uh, licenses to, to hunt the homeless, although Democrats will be down for that one too in major cities. There will be no, there, because there will be no pressure. It's all about pressure. Just because these people's, like the, de- the Republican base has these ideas about nation that would be served by uh, like some sort of Keynesianism uh, as opposed to just strict neoliberal uh, 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 rip out the floorboards uh, 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 late stage, you know, bust out capitalism. They're still ex- exerting their uh, politics through a filter of culture and engaging with a a, a spectacle of politics that is as super as it is is as synthetic and as dominated by capital as the democratic portion of it is. At a certain point, you have to, like, nationalism emerged as the liberal um, resistance to capitalism. Like, nationalism, because capitalism begins immiserating, right, in the early 19th century. That's when you really start to see uh, precarity enter these structures exogenously. Like, oh, like, things are getting worse, but not because of the of a harvest or the decree of a king, but just because of this generalized, this new ghost Whispering through our our cities, this new um, this new boss that is not seen anywhere, and people respond by trying to resist it. Because why wouldn't you? Why the fuck wouldn't you resist it? But the people who are always going to be the people who are most uh, alienated by capitalism. The fastest and most importantly, the most influentially are the middle class. Because, of course, the super wealthy, as this shift changes, they just it's just a change of revenue stream. They don't feel they feel a little they feel a little unnerved, unnerved, maybe that they've unleashed this this power that's beyond their control. But they're still at the top. It's and at the bottom. People are are actually being alienated along strict labor lines like you work or you starve and they and they start getting class consciousness. But in the middle, they just feel this precarity, this sense of being stuck between these two new categories. They don't feel responsible for either, but they want to resist on their own terms this encroaching capitalism. And what can they use to do it? What can they change the world with? And the weapon they have is the nation, because that is a vocabulary and set of symbols that can be translated across space and time in the form of 
the newspaper-based uh, uh, nationalist movement or nationalist uh, projects that created modern nationalism. If anyone has read Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, he talks about how 19th century nationalism was a middle-class movement generated by the knowledge workers of the European Berg, the university students, the uh, newspaper editors, the intelligentsia. Do Do I need to see it? Do I need to even say the word that they are? Well, they are not alienated along a class line necessarily because they feel like they're actually getting more out of this deal than they're not. Because it is, as we've said, it is always outside of the absolute categories. It is a range, and it's a range defined by which one you feel more. Do you feel more invested in the system? Do you feel more benefited from it? Do you feel more afraid of it changing? Do you feel more that if it changed, you would lose, then you don't want to change it? And those people are the ones with the time to sit on their asses and consume and make the media that forms the culture that makes nations things. The nations of Europe were all made in the minds of poets and journalists in the mid-19th century. All these projects of bringing together folk wisdom and language and this identity, these are, these are things that were real, but were in a context of feudalism, in a pre-national context of like local culture, and they're turning it into this machine-made capitalized idea that is a pure propaganda uh, structure. It is super structural. And so when capitalism is resisted in 1848, how is it resisted? Along the axis of nations. The springtime of the nation, they called it. And it was the national projects that advanced the farthest, much farther than the, the workers' project, which was there because the workers contributed to the 48 at every level. They contributed the bodies in the streets. They contributed the manpower. But they did not contribute the leadership because they were out there working for a living, which meant that when it came time to deal with the powers that be, with your Metternichs, with your Franz Josephs, with your... Um, uh, with your king of Bavaria, the people negotiating would be doing so on behalf of people who are more dedicated to nation and liberal reform than they were to egalitarianism because it wasn't in their interest to be egalitarian. This is the same situation as the French Revolution. France is the first explosion of this. You've got to imagine capitalism being infused into, into England, into Europe. It's like a virus infecting a body. And over time, you have these, these flare-ups these explosions of uh, accumulated friction within the system that lead to apocalyptic change. And that is the punctuated equilibrium of social evolution. These conflicts drive forward the mechanism whereby politics accommodates capitalism. And so that means that the remaining notions of liberalism that persists now as we reach this this new stage of crisis, this worldwide crisis. We are essentially in the pre-1848 stage of world capitalism. 
Because 48, 1914, 1939, these are all the crises within European capitalism that defined its progress. And when you got to the end, the apocalypse of 1945, world uh, European uh, capitalism gave birth, transferred over, tagged in America to create international American-led capitalism. And that's where we are. We are in this. We are now in a system where all of the uh, contradictions within European capitalism were solved exogenously, mainly by the 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 taking over of the system of America, by the shrewding of distribution of resources, so that hey, Europe, you know how you guys are doing uh, the uh, ruthless blood scramble for resources that defines terminal capitalism. You don't have to do that anymore. We're going to create a global capitalism where we can export the uh, social uh, uh, alienation from the heart of the system and displace it out to the periphery. We will take over, we will take over your empire. We will administrate it rationally through the, through the mechanism of capitalism. We will defeat the Soviet uh, and, and third world challenges in the field of battle where we have to, but the end result will be you will get the spoils of hyper-exploitation hyper to enjoy at the center with all of that social alienation burned out, all of those externalities filtered out because America can coordinate it on your behalf and you don't have to fight anymore. The same way that the progressive era stopped all those robber baron trusts that were destabilizing capitalism from fighting between each other. And the thing was is that as if – if interstate resource conflicts continue in a technological age, it is the end of civilization, the end of humanity. And as long as you have some humans around to apply the brakes on capitalism, it'll put brakes on. But we have reached the end stage where there is no one to put a brake on it. That is the new era. And the, we're now, we haven't seen the first big explosion, but we've seen the first condition setting events. 9-11, of course, huge. Uh, and the, the um, the 2008 collapse, massive. And all of it in the background pushing it, climate change. The externalities building up in the system, the carburetor getting sooty. And so that is the situation we find ourselves in. And But because the working class was defeated during this period, first the European working class, then the global working class were defeated over the course of the, of the, uh, the overall war between capitalism and humanity that was fought in Europe over the course of the 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And that once the European was the European working class was defeated, the global working class over the course of the Cold War has been defeated. 
that only means that conflict and crisis are inevitable because there is no more break on the pedal, which means all of these situations become uh, unstable. And we once again reach a time when people can act. And this is to get back to my original point, which is that one of the things that keeps me frozen in place, and I think many others in the liberal condition, is that because we view the world from a remove, because we view the world having lived, because we live isolation, we live in isolation from each other, we spend little time together as equals. We spend a lot of time in simulated engagement that is not human interaction. And so we build this selfish island. We build this isolated consciousness that imagines itself separate from a material world. And if you think that way, you decide what to do by looking backward. Like I, I look backward. I, I'm a history guy. And then forward, which is, or, or like what you think is, is like the contemporary moment, but really forward, which is politics. Politics is looking forward. And you look back into history to try to figure out how to look forward, at least if you're trying to be, you know, helpful to the human project, which really needs it right now, we're in a crisis, then you have to operate from that agenda. So you end up looking at a past and a future that are defined by people operating through the skeletal logic of cause and effect. Because when I say that we make the world, that we literally can make it, that we are gods within the matrix, that we could cut through all of this if we were able to communicate that fact to each other, if we were able to feel it, if we were able to feel it, we could literally remake the world in almost any form. We have the capacity. We have the unleashed human potential we have the tools to do it. Now, it's not gonna, it couldn't happen overnight. That's where the materialism comes in. It's not transubstantiation. It's not everybody does acid at the same time. It's the building of institutions and reinforcing social structures within a counterculture that then becomes a challenger for control in a crisis moment and in a, in a period where capitalism's ability to sustain itself is undermined by its own hyper-exploitation. But it's hard to believe in that if you're a liberal subject like me, because you look at the past and you think of the future and all you see is people acting out of self-interest. All you see is the result of the, the anti-life equation writing itself across human history. From, from, from the dawn of time until the end of civilization and beyond, everything is written by this deterministic uh, yoke of uh, cause and effect. People operating out of selfish interests over time being atomized and, and, and having their uh, humanity stripped of them and turning into mechanisms within a machine. And so therefore, when you imagine the future, you imagine one made that way. And that's all rational, but it is insufficient because that's not the world. That is what's left by the world, because when I say we all make the world, when I say we, I mean every person in every moment, and I, when I say the world, I mean the world in that moment, and because we are not the same people from moment to moment, because we are constantly being inter, 
acted with, with other uh, matter shaped by other people, both past and present, who are literally giving us the world that we engage with and giving us the symbolic understanding of what those things in it are and what they mean and what our values are. Literally creating the world for us, but then we inhabit it and then act out of it, interact with the world, shape it. That is how we literally make the world, but it is in the moment. And then once the moment's over, the next moment appears to you changed by what you did. And you might remember a little bit of who you used to be, but you don't really remember everything. And now the thing that's real to you is the world around you that is now interfering, interacting with you, having been changed by what you did. And that is how, as we decide what to do in an increasingly technologically sophisticated world where we live more and more isolated lives that are more and more determined by our uh, selfish understanding of uh, our fundamental alienation from the world, our finitude, a desire to to, um, protect our own pleasure because it is the only thing we can imagine to be real in the universe. We then act like that's everything. And we act from those premises. And then history is the, is the, uh, is the dead hand, uh, uh, the, the weight of history lying like a nightmare on the brain of the living. And so we ignore the, the world that like, our body wants, our mind, our, our hearts wants that can be divined by paying attention to it. And that is why for me, the only reason to do stuff like this is to get back to the idea of slowing down and experiencing and how, and, and, and seeking that with the language that makes sense to you that is going to be determined by things that you feel that are associated with time and place, time and place, all the stuff you're interacting with here, it only adheres to uh, the place, the ideas, the time leaves. And therefore the emotion that you felt is gone. All you have is the symbol. Like if you look at human history as, like a giant, it's not a body, it's a skeleton. And all of the muscle and all the fat and all the organs and all that stuff dissolved off over the course of time because we're different people looking through a lens of time at other people, not just ourselves, obviously, but people in previous relationships to previous modes of production, uh, social formations, symbolic understandings. They were different people. But when you're understanding what happened, it's not just the pull of selfishness that leaves its mark because that's how people are interacting with their world. But in the dreams that they had, and the dreams they had were not about that. The dreams they had were based on feelings that transcended selfish desire because they were fixed to a a sensuous understanding of connection that is baffled and obscured and alienated away by living in the symbolic realm of the post-capitalist or the, 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 post, uh, the post-personal. The technological age. 
But this is something that gives me a lot of hope. It makes me feel, uh, I feel, it makes me feel optimistic about not just how I will able be able to impact the world in the future, but that how humanity will be able to respond to the challenges. Is that while we're all operating from hedonic calculus, that calculus changes. Our ability to ignore the pain around us also changes. And that changes our relationship to that pain. And every one of the moments that we feel that is a moment that we could have a change of relationship of understanding and and start looking at something differently. And then, most importantly, acting differently. Breaking through the matrix. Stepping into awareness of one's ability to exercise control of the world, which is faith. That's what you can boil that down to. Because the thing that you can't make sense of, the thing you can't find in the dry retelling of history up until the last second you looked at it and your imaginings of the future is that they are without a soul, essentially. They presuppose that there is no soul, but we know there is because it's what actually propels us through life, but that does not leave a a track culturally. And the, the apocalypse that we see is one where we can't imagine living life the way we live it now. And we won't. But our relationship to that world will be different. Our relationship to concepts of meaning and the self will be different. Some things that we can't imagine going through will feel, feel like a gift, like the ability to do them because it is rewarded in your life will be a fucking gift. Well, the essence that is created is just the essence. The essence is created by the 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 process of reawakening and rediscovering in the moment, and reorienting towards the moment, and experiencing every moment, and like the memory of it, like the, that 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 haunted house in your head that is your understanding of the world that is made up of all of your experiences of it, and then your fantasized projections around it that is generated by you living through the cycles of time the cycle generates a spark but it is not an eternal spark it is a moment-to-moment spark but because it's every moment it fills a defined time space portal like it becomes a a trail like like a donnie darko tube snake in space-time. Someone says, is this expecting everyone to spontaneously change behavior? No. And this is another place where you have to remind, you have to get back to specifics. I am talking about this because this is my relationship to my world. I have found myself a podcaster of note with a relatively large public profile profile 
with social and uh, familial and friendship obligations to other people that I feel are important to me. What do I do? And the answer that I can come up with is, well, I'll look around. I'll keep myself conscious of options. But if I'm doing this as a job, which is absurd to think of, but is true, this is my job. It is not, it is unalienated labor. It is the dream. It is the, I am living in post, like I was talking, I talked a few days ago about how a mile from me, there are people who are living in the post-apocalypse. And here I am a mile away from them living in the uh, utopia. I am living in the post-scarcity utopia in practical, in practical terms. I get to hunt in the morning and fish in the afternoon and crit- criticize after dinner or criticize all day and order grub up if I want to. I, because this does not feel as though it is alienated labor. This is work under communism. But the reason that it is not post-capitalism, the reason that it is not a utopia, is because there's somebody having the post-apocalypse a mile away from me. And that this, this utopia depends on that dystopia. And therefore, if I am to live a moral existence, if I, if I am to feel like I am honoring my feelings of connection and, 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 and love, then I have to try to change that. I have to. So how do I do it? Well, if I worked at, if I worked a real job, I would want to do whatever I could to try to encourage uh, uh, class consciousness raising at my job. That is what I would try to do. I would try to, and I, of course, it would require you to be, if you really wanted to do it, and this is the self-disciplining part. Like if you want to do that because it makes you feel like you're doing something, and that's it, you'll do it half-assedly. You'll do it in a way that doesn't require a lot of work on your part. You'll do it in a way that gets other people in trouble. You'll do it fecklessly because you're really just doing it to feel like you're doing something. Just like liberals vote so they feel like they're doing something or post because they feel like they're doing something. If you really want to do it, though, if you really want to help other people because you love them, then you're going to make it your duty to do a good goddamn job. And that means figuring out what the steps are, uh, trying to find the vocabulary and language that works for other people. Hit them where they live, not where you live. Put your own thoughts and beliefs and feelings down a little bit. Privilege those uh, interactions. Privilege making connections and making political points that will Make people understand you, being motivated by getting people on your side, not by being the right one. And I would try to do whatever, I would do what, what in the moment made sense to make that happen. But I can't answer the question of what that would mean if I had that job, because I don't fucking have that job. I don't have that relationship, that labor relationship. I am an entertainer, essentially, without a labor relationship. This is what the artisans of 1848 were fighting for, by the way. If you want to really, if you want to call this the pre-48 era, like the beginning of 48, 
the rise of nationalism as a response, nationalism and socialism as a response to the immiseration of capitalism. It is now, um, this is now the final revolt of the sort of pseudo-serb, pseudo-artisans. What about this? It's a pseudo-art. No, see, somebody says my moral obligation argument is the New England. No, it's not New England puritanism. It is an obligation to one's own hedonic self-interest. It squares the circle. You don't do it because you're obliged by others. You do it because it feels better to do it than to not do it. It feels better to do it than to not do it. Because if you ignore that feeling, you will be worse off. You might be able to ignore it. You might be able to find pleasures to distract yourself. But over time, and in the moment of self-reflection, it is agony. Because there is no conflict between the best interests of others in your immediate vicinity and your own. You can find that. If you are not trying to hide from your sense of felt connection to other people. If you're not trying to hide it under rage and selfishness and ideology and irony. And that is what, that is why the only answer capitalism can have internally outside of political interaction, political mobilization is to buy people off. Is to say, Yes, this system strips the humanity out of everybody. But if you all knew that, you would destroy it. Here's the deal. It will strip the humanity out of some of you much more slowly than it will strip the humanity out of others of you. And those who it will strip the most slowly to will be the artisans, the people at the closest nexus point to capitalist production, at its most vulnerable positions, where it is legally constructed, where it is ideologically constructed, and in its early days where it is materially constructed. The people there, if you give them a deal, they'll take it. And that is why the artisans and the, uh, the liberal nationalists sold out the workers in 48 and reified nationalism so that when the big cap crisis of capitalism comes in Europe in, 18, in 1914, what happens? The working class commits suicide. Because everybody else got bought off. Enough people got bought off by imperialism that the artisan class turned on the workers. Which is what 48 was. It's what fascism was. And in America, post-World War II, we essentially took we took the uh, industrial factory worker of the most vital sectors of the defense and then consumer economy, and we made them artisans in the sense that we gave them enough, but not in control of their work, because that's one thing artisans were, there's two things artisans were fighting against, that they were getting less money for the work they did, and also that they had to do work that was more, uh, because they had to work harder for more money they worked more miserably, and it was literally less pleasant for them to work. And they wanted control over their rate of work that would have made it more pleasurable for them. 
that complaint was bought off in Europe first and then in the United States through free real estate and by racial caste system with more consumption, with more convenience in the time that they did have. And so by half buying off the, 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 the uh, artisans who were the middle and decisive class, because they're closer to production, they're closer to political mobilization than the working class. And they helped capitalism win. And congratulations. What did it get them? It got them, it bought them time is what it did. And that was a good short-term deal for those guys who made the deal because they died before the, the fucking deal kicked off. Now we're dealing a crisis where the people who've been getting this deal until at this moment, basically, are having the terms renegotiated. And they're right next to the fucking production. But the production has moved. It's now been transubstantiated into the global supply chain through technology. So there's nowhere to fight. It has fled. Capital fled the, the crucial st- points. And the, the legal structures have now been totally uh, 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 dissolved from within. And so what we're seeing now, the culture war that defines our politics that I've been talking about the past few, few days is a nervous breakdown of this post-artisan class. Because they stopped being working class people even though they kept having working class jobs. But they were not living working class lifestyles as Marx understood them and as would be created in a closed system because capitalism cannot defi- cannot afford artisanship over the long term as the entropy builds up in the system, as externalities begin to choke the gears, as resources are depleted, as the technology fails to keep up with entropy. And so people had, relative to others, because remember, when I say that they lived an artisan lifestyle, obviously they did not have anything like the freedom of an artisan. But one thing, they didn't have the precarity of an artisan because there were poor artisans. And two, that the life of a, of a uh, artisan, which is a life of semi-alienated labor, more alienated than um, more alienated than the working class, but obviously not capital holders, not rentiers. And what that boils down to is pleasure, pleasure during work. And what we got after World War II was a new professional class where work was, the deal was everybody works about 40 hours. That gives you enough for this nice house, this nice uh, TV and shit. Now, what would you rather do during that time? A mindless repetitive task or something with your mind? Those decisions are made demographically, and then people file into these jobs, and then they live this semi-alienated life 
that is dependent upon the maximal exploitation of other parts of the spectrum, both within the fucking metropole and then after imperialism and then finally post-imperialism, exploitation at the end point of empire, the global supply chain, where the, where the, where the conditions are always antebellum southern, where we have never gotten past primitive accumulation, where we have never gotten past the fucking whip of the overseer. And that misery allows for this this hybrid existence near the center of power and influence political um, mechanisms, people who staff politics all the way through it, which therefore do have a determining factor. Their self-interest is kept after until the global system gets too much entropy and the deal breaks down, which is where we are now. So the pseudo-artisan class, because it experiences itself as between two classes, feels basically in the same spot that the pre-1848 artisan class did. The difference is that they, after 48, got bought off. But now, because there's nothing else to buy off, there was a Africa to buy off. There was, there were, there was um, the spoils of empire to buy off. That is now, those, that frontier is closed. So the artisans are now in a situation much like 48, where the system cannot accommodate them, because that's why it broke down in 48. Because at that point, it had not developed sufficient tentacles outside of Europe to distribute or sufficient tentacles of democratic response. Because democratic government, even though it's a sham under a bourgeois dictatorship, is still essentially a price signal. It is a social price signal to capitalism's nervous system to tell you how much fucking uh, silt is building up and how much resistance is building up and how much social alienation is building up. And it couldn't respond because it wasn't a sufficiently advanced mechanism. Now we're at a point where that mechanism is fully developed because uh, we have created a global flow of capital. Like 19, after 2008, you have, 2008 was basically 1929 all over again in terms of a, an apocalyptic infarction of the global like circulatory system. And our response to it was different because the forces, the social forces were different because our working class had been turned into this bought off artisan class. that didn't want to fall and couldn't imagine doing better in an egalitarian situation. Somebody's telling me that there is no second law of thermodynamics. Uh, okay, sure, fine, whatever. If you're going to tell me that 
disorder within a system is not constant. You can. But you are right, I would argue, only in a narrow enough sense that it's meaningless. Somebody keeps saying closed versus open system. It's a closed system. Someone explain to me why it's not a closed system. I don't believe in the big crunch. I believe in a second big bang. I believe that at the end of the total heat exhaustion of the universe, you are at the same point you were when the big bang happened, which means eventually the big bang will happen again. It could take a billion years, but it will happen again. And yes, does that mean eternal recurrence? Perhaps. It could also mean, though, that every time we relive, we remember a little more of the feeling of living. And maybe every single one of these that we're living is the one where we're shifting our understanding and memory in one direction. And of course, we don't know which one we're in now, but eventually there's one where we recognize our collective ability to communicate, our collective connection, and then maybe because we're alive now, we're in the last one. Because once it happens, it's always happened, right? And then history, the the human the the universe is just this constant cycle spinning through because remember once you're talking about it as this uh this uni- these universal time scales it loses all meaning the fact that it happened once means it's always happened because then time means nothing it could take a trillion years for the fucking second big bang to happen but then boom Because materialism is correct in that when you are doing the thing of studying human history, the human, the structures that compose human civilization, the skeleton of human social dynamics, the human consciousness coming into it, into itself, you are getting the mental skeleton of the world spirit. If you are doing that, you have to apply material constructs because it is the material that is left for us to study. So we can only build accurate models by focusing on the actual existing stuff. The things that pushed us through that time as a species, the subjective experience of the moment is gone. And that's the dark matter of history. What is it? How much of the universe is dark matter? Similar amount of our understanding of the past is dark matter. It it is gone. It dissolves because all that's left is our actions that come from them. And they are such a small fraction of our actual uh, felt experience of life. And it is the felt experience of life that when crucial moments come, determine our actions. Because there are always crucial moments for every person and then among people. And those crucial moments determine fates. And what makes those moments is what made those people.
but you can't know it. And the more that you project it, which is what moralist, moralist history does and what, what idealist history does, if you project it, because idealist history is let's read the minds of people in the past. That's what they say. Let's read the minds of our historical figures and we'll know why the past happened. Or you could look at what they did. You won't have the full story either way, but the story you tell from that will be more useful to you in understanding what the world is and how it works than whatever the fuck you're going to get out of that self-projected fantasy that is entirely made up of your own preconceived fucking notions. And so that is what materialist history is. It is powered by a spirit. It is powered by ideas. But the ideas can only be seen in their shadows. You start from the assumption that the shadows are there, but you make sense of how they wrought themselves on the world by looking at the structures that they left. What those people, the decisions those people made. <clears throat> The second law, in my mind, has not been uh, disproven anywhere it matters. Because all propositions are true or false at certain layers of the cake. The question is whether they're applicable to the, what you're trying to do. And for me, looking at questions of grand conceptual history and theory that I'm supposed to talk about to people so that they can think about them, and then maybe having thought about them, change their relationship to the moment. Like they go out and live their life, and because they heard something I said, they decide to do A instead of B. Is that going to change history by itself? No. But those are the things that provide the context for people to change that are generated by changes in their material relationships. Damn, I keep going long. So I should wrap it up. So once again, this is all just another uh, mandala. It's basically what I'm doing with these. I'm just drawing a mandala to bring you back to where you always were with a fresh perspective. Or That's what I'm doing for myself so that when I do go out into the world, when I do engage with questions about what to do with politics, what to do with other people in my life, that I'm remembering these things and the feelings that they all are connected to. Because at the end of the day, all of this boils down to feel. Do not allow the, uh, the mind to take your feelings, capture your feelings, and use them against you, which is what it's designed to do. And that's some hippie bullshit, but 
You shouldn't be doing it if you have an actual useful job, but if you are a little Eloy floating in the in the uh, uh, in the amniotic sack of post scarcity, where you have to keep yourself from going crazy, which means you have to square the contradictions of life, square the contradictions of being the beneficiary of so much monstrous exploitation. But that guilt needs to be worked through. It doesn't need to be uh, acknowledged as, as like uh, real because that's where Protestantism shows up. Protestantism is when that gnawing voice in your head, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Say if you're a Puritan bookkeeper who's like kicking people out of their homes in, in early uh, 1600s. And there's a little voice in your head saying, what are you doing to your fellow fucking human? You start to feel guilt, and then you have to find a purge for it. And how? By showing God that you love in him the most, and showing God that you believe in him the most. Well, we can't believe in God anymore because we look too close. We tug too deeply and too greedily, and we know too much. So now we can only feel guilt and have to constantly purge it to satisfy an other that we have created, a psychological projection that judges us now and makes us punish ourselves or feel pleased now because we won't be in the future, because we now have internalized the end of life as the closing of the curtains, as the annihilation. And that is faith that is inverted. What I'm saying is a rediscovery of faith that says, okay, what do I do about this if I don't feel good? And then seeks out not to hide from it, but to engage with it. And that means engaging with the pain of others engaging with the herd of others and seeking to soothe it and by soothing it, soothe our own. And I don't know how successful I'm going to be at that because I have to admit to you guys, this is a very soothing balm doing this. always. Oh, I feel so, you know what? I really am helping people. And of course that's always going to be to some degree self-serving in the narrow self-defeating sense, but there's other voices out there. There's other choirs singing and I'm still hearing them, and I'm still listening, and I just am taking the moment to make myself feel ready to hear them when they start, or when I can, when they hit my frequency. All right, I hope some of that made sense. Oh my God! Somebody says the soul, as you know, it cannot possibly exist. The soul is the universe. The universe, as you observe it in the moment, not as you look at it through the rearview mirror, as you experience in the moment, literally is a soul. It is our souls all interacting through time and space, both intimately, intimately and over conceptual and imaginative uh, uh, barriers. Spirit, material, there is no dichotomy. We can, only, we can only talk coherently about one or the other at a time. And so we need different vocabularies to address one or the other, but they, are not neg they don't negate each other. They only negate each other in our minds, which is why we have to keep that 
in our heads. At least I do. The beauty part is that once you start acting, acting out of this motivation, you don't have to think about it so much. You don't have to think. It'll present itself as the right thing to do because you're not doing it in your head. You're doing it in the world and you're getting feedback from the world. You're getting emotional feedback from the world that's telling you hot or cold. And then you will follow that hot, hot, hot. And then you don't have to think so fucking much. I'm hoping I can balance my way towards that over time. We'll see. I'm hoping that I can put this down in the book in a way that is translatable because yeah, like it is part of what makes me feel motivated to do these is the image of it helping somebody somewhere, which is very pretentious, but also and self-serving, but also unavoidable. All right. Talk to you guys soon.